as some of you know, um, this I am like really into, for whatever reason, all of the events surrounding the passing of the queen. And um, like I was actually up at 5, 5, 5.30 on Monday because her casket was being moved from Westminster Hall, transported down to, to Westminster Abbey where um, there would be a funeral service. And like, I don't know why I get up to watch it. It's literally just watch people march for a half an hour. And they had the, her funeral service in, in Westminster Abbey. And as someone who loves church history, Westminster Abbey is such an important place and it's such a beautiful place. And so much has happened in that room. And if you missed it, like, let me just say like the liturgy, the prayers, it all pointed so clearly to Jesus. Fun fact, Don, what does this have to do with Genesis? Well, because I'm so interested in all the events surrounding monarchy and the liturgy around it and the divine right of kings and so on, I wanted to share with you a bit of English legend. This is like old school English QAnon for you um, about the stone of scone, this rock. Any of you familiar with the stone of scone? Like maybe this is why scones are dry um, and kind of hard, I don't know. But the stone of scone has been fought over and argued about for like years, hundreds and hundreds of years. And the theory with this stone is that this stone that you see was actually the stone that Jacob rested his head on in Genesis 28 and anointed. And the legend has it that the prophet Jeremiah transported this stone to Scone, England. In that, in, because it's supposedly Jacob's stone, it's been used in the coronation of kings in England since like Edward. In fact, Queen Elizabeth II was coronated with this rock underneath her throne, symbolizing the anointing. And King Charles III will have this stone brought from Scotland to Westminster Abbey, and they'll put it under his seat when he's coronated king. Kind of wild. And we're going to be looking at this text today. It's a little bit far-fetched, if you ask me, but conspiracy theories are not new. And you can go look up more about that if you're interested at all. But as we think about English legends, and whatever you think about English legends, we're going to actually look at the passage where Jacob sleeps on a rock in Genesis 28. And we're gonna see that growth, that Christian growth, Christian maturity to grow as a disciple and follower of Jesus begins where we are because that is where God meets us. It doesn't begin kind of when you get to a different place in your spiritual life. It begins kind of right where you're standing, or in your case, sitting right now. So grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis 28. We're gonna work through the whole chapter together. I'm gonna read it and uh, respond the word of the Lord and you'll reply, thanks be to God. Hear God's word. So Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him, and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite girl. Go at once to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. 
Mary, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you may become an assembly of peoples. May God give you and your offspring the blessing of Abraham so that you may possess the land where you are to live as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau noticed that Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him to Padanaram to get, his, get a wife there. When he blessed him, Isaac commanded Jacob, do not marry a Canaanite girl. And Jacob listened to his father and mother and went to Padanaram. Esau realized that his father Isaac disapproved of the Canaanite women. So Esau went to Ishmael and married, in addition to his other wives, Mahalath, daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. She was the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place, and he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky, and God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out towards the west, the east, the north and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone and it was near his head and he set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, if God will be with me and watch over me during this journey, I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give you a tenth of all that you give me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we have three points today as we work through our text. The first is a departure and a blessing. Last week we learned that in our messiness, and in Jacob's messiness, God's promises still stand. That the promises of God aren't void because of the mess that we make for ourselves. But we also learned that sin has lasting consequences that we have to live with sometime. And one of the consequences for Jacob was having to flee because of the anger of Esau, his brother. Esau wanted to kill him after stealing the blessing that Esau thought was meant for him. And we, in verse one says this, so Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite girl, go at once to Badanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, marry one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So Jacob's sent away. He's told not to marry a Canaanite girl and he's told to go find a wife and to find a wife from his extended family. Now listen, I'm just gonna say the times were different then. I don't know, it's weird, I get it. He goes and marries a cousin, I guess. We'll keep moving. But notice something here. Isaac, who was once wanting to give Esau the blessing, has now fully recognized that the blessing of God comes 
upon Jacob. In fact, the words that he uses are, for God are El Shaddai, like, which, is, which is hearkening back to Abraham. So he, he is recognizing that the blessing belongs to Jacob. And he says, may God give you and your offspring the blessing of Abraham so that you may possess the land. Jacob is, is now extending the promise, as it were, that was given to Abraham, that was given to him. He is now extending that to his son, Jacob. But then, the text, in the text, there's Esau. Esau is such a fascinating man. Like, if we had more time, we could just do a character study on Esau. He sees his younger brother get blessed, and he knows that his family disapproves of Canaanite women. And it's almost like he's trying to make up for his wrongs, but he, he goes and takes a wife, but not from the Canaanites, but from the Ishmaelites. It's like he's trying to, to earn back what has been lost in some way. Like he wants good standing so bad that he's, okay, I, I heard my parents, I heard they don't like Canaanite women. Well then, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm not gonna marry a Canaanite woman, I'm gonna marry someone else. And so he goes and marries someone from the line of Esau, Ishmael. And it, here's the thing, Ishmael, if you remember in Genesis, is part of, he is not the child of promise. So Esau is simultaneously trying to like take matters into his own hands. He's trying to earn some sort of favor for his family. And, and at the same time, he's now like solidifying himself as outside of the promise of God. And I don't know, and I don't wanna read too much into the text, but I find it fascinating Esau never humbles himself. Like we know from the New Testament that he never repents. He never gets his heart right. Instead, Esau, he tries to go at things his own way constantly. Instead of just humbling himself before God and his family, he keeps trying to earn some sort of status with them by, by taking a wife from the people that he thinks would his parents would approve of. And it doesn't work. And the lesson for us, I think, that might be buried in here is that you really can't make up for your wrongs. Have you ever seen someone try to make up from their wrongs and they just can't? It's like, you just can't. You can't, you can't make yourself right. You can only confess and repent and try to move forward. But here's Esau. He just keeps trying to dig himself out and it's not working. He doesn't ever get that growth begins right where you are. So we have a departure. Jacob is sent out, and we have a blessing. Jacob is blessed by his father. So he leaves to find a wife, which leads to our next point, a stone in a staircase. Jacob sets off, wandering through the desert. This isn't like just a short, a short trail. He'll be there in a while. He leaves. The sun is starting to set. Who knows what's kind of going through his mind, right? Like he's leaving all of his comfort behind because of what he's done. And he's told to go find a wife. And the sun is beginning to set in the horizon. The hot air is starting to cool down. And 
Like you wonder if he's missing home at all. The security of his family, of being with them, the security of knowing where your food's gonna come from, the security of maybe having soft things to lay on. He has none of that. And in verse 11, in the middle of the wilderness, it says he reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place. He's away from everything. And he finds a stone, realizes he needs some sleep, and he uses it for a pillow. And as just an aside, I don't really know why he chose a stone. Like in my head, like I'm like, couldn't you like, like grab your shirt like, or something or a cloak and put some dirt in it and like wrapped it up? Wouldn't it have been better? I don't know. But he chooses a rock and he lays his head on it. And it's interesting that it's in this place, in the desert, on the ground with a stone, that God meets him. Because you see, Jacob hasn't really progressed at all as a human being. He's still kind of awful, right? He's the guy that like steals a birthright. He's the guy that deceives his father. And he's the guy that steals a blessing. He's the guy that doesn't trust God. He takes matters into his own hands. He's always looking out for himself. Nothing has changed about him. But here we find him in the desert on a rock, taken asleep. And this is where God chooses to meet him. Doesn't come on the mountaintop. Doesn't come after Jacob has gotten his act together. It does not happen after a marvelous display of provision like it did for Abraham. It happens when he goes to bed, doing what he should do. And there's something wonderful about like the mundanity and the ordinariness to it. And here's God. When Jacob thinks he's all alone, in the wilderness, far from home, going to sleep, that is where God meets him. The ordinary spaces of our lives, brothers and sisters, are the sacred spaces where God meets us. In the loneliness, in the desert. And God wants to meet us right where we are. And when it comes to our growth as a Christian, we grow by starting in the middle of wherever we find ourselves and realize that God meets us right there. Not where we wish we were. When Jacob falls asleep, it says, verse 12, he dreamed and a stairway was set up on the ground with its top reaching the sky and God's angels were going up and down on it. Now this stairway, what's commonly called to, referred to as Jacob ladder and um, was more of a staircase. So think Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. That's what I start singing every time I read this story. And in the minds of the readers of this text, or in anyone telling the story, they would have thought of a ziggurat, which we learned about in the Tower of Babel. A ziggurat was a place of worship where, where people would go up the stairs to appeal to the gods. Right? They would climb up the steps, and it was a symbol of passing from the realm of earth into the realm of heaven. 
they would go up there to try to appeal to God. The gods didn't come down the stairs, friends. The gods would have to be met at the top. They were up there. So in an agrarian society, you can imagine the things that they would have asked for. They would have, they would have wanted to plead with the gods for that the ground would be fertile, right? And that they would have crops and they would... And then someone would go up there and plead with the gods to do this. They, that God would bless him. If they, maybe they would have gone up and, and asked the gods for rain because they needed those crops to grow. They would plead with the God. If they were football fans, the Steeler fans would walk up and plead with the gods because they lost to the Browns and they don't know what's going on. This is what they do. They go up. And hopefully, the gods hear them and they get rain and come to their aid. But notice that in Jacob's dream, there appears a stairway. And Jacob isn't invited up the stairs to plead with God. Rather, the angels keep coming down the stairs and going back up again. This symbol of heaven coming down to earth, of God coming down to Jacob. Jacob doesn't have to rise up. Jacob the scoundrel is now Jacob the visited by God. His life was invaded by God in the middle of his sleep. And look at what God says. If you have your Bibles open, God says, I am the Lord. He shows up and declares that he is Yahweh. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac. He's the God who's made all things. Jacob would have for sure heard about this God. And God is declaring, I am him. Jacob hasn't had a revelation of God yet. His dad did, his grandfather did, but Jacob has not. And God is revealing himself to, to him. And God said, I'll give you the offspring of the land on which you're lying. God extends to him the same promise that he made to Abraham. He says his offspring will be like the dust of the earth. He says, all people will be blessed from you through you and your offspring. So the blessing that Jacob was gonna receive is gonna go out to the ends of the earth. And then he says, I am with you and will watch over you. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. Jacob the scoundrel, Jacob the deceiver is now Jacob, the one chosen by God. God comes to him and reveals himself to him in spite of who he is, and God sets his love upon him. This is the starting point of faith, friends. And this is also the starting point of maturity in faith. Because God sets his love upon us. And it is from that love that we grow. But I mess up over and over and over again. No, remember, God sets his love upon you. But I fail frequently all the times. God has set his love upon you. But I've deceived my parents. God has set his love upon you. Jacob was a mess. His family was a mess. But God, because he is gracious and kind, set his love on Jacob in spite of who he was. And he revealed himself to Jacob. One scholar says this. He said, the dream Jacob has is not a morbid review 
of Jacob's shameful past. It is rather the presentation of an alternative future with God. God doesn't come and rehash all the ways that Jacob has messed up. He sets before him himself and gives him a new future in him. This is God's level of commitment. God is saying that Jacob's future now is bound up in who God is, in brothers and sisters, in Christ. This is your future too. Because this is what Christ does when he comes to us. He says, he, he doesn't just reveal to us the shamefulness of our past. Well, sure, we become aware of it and must confess of it. But he sets before us his love and invites us into a new future with him that's bound up into the plans of God. And Jacob responds, which leads to our last point, a gate and a vow. Verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob wakes up and he realizes after everything he just saw in his sleep that this wasn't just in any old dream that he has encountered the living God and he knows that nothing can be the same. He recognized that the sacred had come to the ordinary and he responds with awe and with fear. This is a pattern we would see, we will see over and over again in the scriptures. That when God comes to people and reveals who he is, the only appropriate first response is worship, is fear and awe for who God is. God comes to the prophet Isaiah later on in Isaiah, and he reveals himself, and Isaiah's first response was, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord, the King of glory. John, the apostle, gets a vision of, of God, and what is his first response? His first response is that he falls on his face as if he were dead. Jacob realizes that he has been in the presence of God and he is filled with fear. And I think in this moment, Jacob is, is having a bit of a reality check with his own sinfulness too. And he's fearing this God. And we'll see in the next couple of weeks, Jacob is not perfect. He is, he's not just all cleaned up and off he goes. But, but this is where growth starts, friends. He is aware that God's presence is with, is with him. And he refers to this place as the gate of heaven. The sacred has invaded a walk in the desert to go get a wife. Friends, there are moments in our lives where Christ comes to us in what seems like normal spaces that you live in. And he wants to change us. He wants to meet us. He's not asking us to go somewhere else. He's asking us to be aware of his presence with you now and to respond. Jacob responds with fear and he responds with worship. He starts putting his life back right. Eugene Peterson says this. He says, 
Our lives are lived well only when they are lived on the terms of their creation, with God loving and us being loved, with God making and us being made, with God revealing and us understanding, with God commanding and us responding. Jacob is becoming aware of that love. He's becoming aware of the God who made him, and he is responding with worship. Friends, if you want to grow in your relationship with God, this is where it starts, with worship. It doesn't start with feeling a certain way. It doesn't start with getting the warm and fuzzies during worship. It doesn't start with, with emotional, like being gripped by your emotions, which leads to worship. It starts with worship because of who God says he is. If you want to grow as a Christian, just start worshiping. Start declaring God's praise. Start meditating on the fact that God has set his love on you and that he is worthy of it. Because if you want to grow as a Christian, you're going to have to learn that God wants to meet you where you are because that is where he is and that response to that is worship in whatever state you find yourself. If things are hard, if things are difficult, this is our first response. It begins in the same place that Jacob and Isaiah and John began. Begins by saying, you are God and you are worthy of worship. You might feel stagnant in your spirituality right now. You might feel like you've plateaued. And there can be a lot of reasons for that feeling. Sometimes we just, some of us are just so tired we need to take a nap. <laughs> and God wants us to rest in him. But might I suggest that if, that, if you feel like that's you, that you've plateaued, that you've that you're kind of stopped growing, might I suggest that you start with worship right where you are, regardless of how you feel, recognizing that God can meet you in that place. Sing, pray, express gratitude in your heart. And you might not always feel like it, but good news, friends, this gathering is put on each week. This worship we, we do together each week in spite of our feelings. We sing, we pray, we confess, we lament, we mourn, we plead with God for healing, regardless of our feelings, trusting that God will meet us here. So I want to encourage you to come, to be all in when you worship. Quiet quitting. You heard this expression yet? People quiet quitting their jobs. So I guess it's this phenomenon, and I haven't read a whole lot about it, where people like clock in at work and they do as little as they can as to kind of like, as a way to like quiet quit. They're not really doing their jobs very well, but they don't want their employer to take much from them. They don't want to work hard, all that stuff. And there's lots of reasons to go into that, and I won't get into it here. But I wonder sometimes if it's too easy for us to quiet quit our faith. We forget that God is here, that he has given us his love. And we kind of go through the motions each, in, each week, 
And I want to encourage you, friends, to keep going through those motions, but keep pleading with God to reveal himself to you, to meet you where you are. Jacob worship goes even further in verse 18. Early in the morning, he took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, though the, previously the city was named Luz. Jacob took the stone, he set it up, he poured oil on it, he anointed it. And he said, God is here. This is God's house. And text goes to great length to point out that this place was named Luz. Previously a city of success, but it was a city of nothing. And it was in the middle of nothing that God gave Jacob everything. Jacob made a vow. He said, if God will be with me and do everything he said, provides for me, then he'll be my God. Jacob vowed to God that if God came through on his promise, he would give him a tenth of everything and that he would worship him. And you know what's interesting? What we know from the Bible, God follows through. And Jacob keeps placing his faith in him. God would be with Jacob. He would not let him go. And Jacob would worship him. And Jacob grew because God found him right where he was. As we approach communion this morning, I wonder if it would be good for us to meditate on this fact. Because I think all of us are tempted to twist God's character a bit. That if we just clean up a certain area of our lives, if we just get certain things right, if we do more and do better, then maybe we'd begin to grow as Christians. And I wonder if this account of what really happened in the life of Jacob is for us to realize that God wants to meet us where we are right now. Like he met Jacob sleeping on a stone in the desert. He might meet us in wherever we find ourselves, in the middle of that stressful job that's sucking our joy, in the middle of the challenges at school and feeling rejected, in the middle of the, the struggles of the joy and challenges of motherhood, and the sin that we've been trying to hide in the uncertainty of life, these spaces are the places that God wants to meet you in. And he's inviting you, friends, where you are, to recognize that he is there. And he wants you to worship from it. Growth begins right where you are because that is where God meets us. And the proof of that is communion. One of my favorite authors, Tish Warren, she's an Anglican priest, said this. She said, of all the things Jesus could have chosen to be done in remembrance of him, Jesus chose a meal. He could have asked his followers to do something impressive or mystical, climb a mountain, fast for 40 days, but instead, he picks the most ordinary of acts, eating, through which to be present to his people. He says that the bread is his body and the wine is his blood. He chooses the unremarkable and plain, average and abundant bread and wine. And when we take communion each week, we are encountering the simple reality that God wants to meet you 
right where you are. We take this every single week so that every single week we are faced with the reality that Jesus is here and he offers us bread and wine and he invites us to worship, to rest, to know that he is at work within us, to walk with you and to carry you home. His life, death, and resurrection are proof that God will be with you until he brings you home. So take communion, friends, recognizing that wherever you are, that's where Jesus wants to find you. Say he's taking care of your sin and invite you to worship him.